0: This event was recorded live at the 2016 Edinburgh International Book Festival.
1: Good morning and welcome to the Spiegel Tent at the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Um, Before we start, can you please give a very warm welcome to our two poets, Sarah Howe and Billy Letford. Can you hear okay? Is everybody all right? Yep, okay. Um, Could you please put your phones on silent? It's great if you tweet, please do so at the um, EdBookFest hashtag, um, but no sounds, please. yeah, this morning we are um, you're in for a treat. Um, I think you should be delighted with your choices this morning. You did an excellent job of deciding to come to this event to kick off the festival. Um, my name's Jenny Niven. I'm Head of Literature at Creative Scotland and I'm just thrilled to be able to um, have a chat with these wonderful poets this morning. Um, we're going to do about ten minutes of readings um, with each of the poets and turn, I think, Billy first. Um, he's going to read a bit. We'll talk about his work a little. Um, and Sarah will get up and do the same and then they'll be a bit of time um, at the end um, for maybe a bit of discussion between the two of them because they know each other's work quite well, um, and also a chance for yourselves to ask um, any questions if you would like to. So let's start with another really warm welcome to just get the energy up a little. Bit. <laughs> Billy, um, I'm, I'm just going to embarrass you a wee bit first, if you don't mind. I just go, want go. to give people a bit yeah, of an introduction just... to you mm-hmm. and your work. I'm sure they all know you already, know. but now that you're standing and feeling a bit awkward... I I am am sorry, like, <laughs> I can laugh <laughs> up. Um, Billy uh, Letford, William Letford, to give him his formal title, um, is a poet from Stirling. Um, he's defected to Winchester, he told me this morning, but it's mm-hmm. from Stirling originally. He's an emlut from uh, Glasgow University, and his first collection, Bevel, was published um, by Kirkannet Press in 2008. 2012. His work has been widely anthologised and um, published in many magazines. Um, he's travelled and toured very widely with his poetry, perhaps a bit more of that, later this morning. Um, he's been to Iraq as part of real festivals, to Northern Italy, thanks to the Edwin Morgan Travel Bursary. A Creative Scotland Artist Bursary allowed him to travel to India for six months. Um, lots of the material from um, that experience has made it its way into the fabulous Dirt, which we will talk about a bit more. Um, Liz Locke, who I'm sure you're all familiar with has said of his writing his work is as utterly original and instantly recognisable as Raymond Carver or Billy Collins though he's not like either um, and Nicholas Lezard wrote in The Guardian that his poems have transcendental insight and that on reading his 14 very short poems in the, new, uh, the anthology's New Poetry Five I feel just as Keats did when he read Chapman's Homer that a new planet has come into the sky so, no pressure at all, Billy.
2: Mm-hmm. Thanks, Benny. i glad I was standing up for that. Right, OK, I'm just going to go straight into the reading to begin with with a poem called In a Bamboo Shack on the Edge of a Beach. He read her The Moor by Russell Banks. It wasn't the story, although the story is good, and it wasn't the way he read it. The Scottish accent couldn't quite grasp the Americanisms. The sure's and yes became parodies that brought humour to beauty that didn't need it. It was the fact that she lay with her head in his chest and he felt the rumble of his own voice and the vibration of what's gone before. The story he read ends full of snow and they lay very still. But what to do? How long could they remain there? So he began to trace patterns on her skin with his fingers and the patterns became circles and the circles became words. And these actions have a tendency to progress. He lifted her t-shirt over her shoulders and we know the rest. There are all types of bodies. If you're lucky, you'll find someone whose skin is a canvas for the story of your life. Write well. Take care of the heartbeat behind it. Um, While I was in India, I managed to find my way to uh, a set of islands off India's east coast called the Andaman Islands. And they're pretty remote. Um, And the the one that I was on was called Havelock and it had a population of indigenous crocodiles. And I mean, the pattern between all the travelers were, have you seen a crocodile? Because there were signs up everywhere saying, beware the crocodiles. Now, i have never seen a crocodile, right? But I was on the beach one day, and it was a lovely day. It was like, you can imagine it. So there's like sand everywhere, waves rolling in, blue sky, and I was in a line of people. And this joint started to get passed along the line of people, right? Now I'm no much of a smoker, but you know, the joint's getting passed along, and I thought, Phew, If there's ever a time for it, it's new. You know, there's beach, sky, there's everything great. So this joint gets passed along, and I take a wee blast of this joint, and I go along. And then I got a very specific kind of paranoia. Crocodile paranoia. (laughs) (laughs) And I was sitting there, and I thought, this thing could come out of the water. It could be behind me. I don't know where it's going to go. And even when I went back to my hut, I thought, this thing could come in the door, you know? And I don't know if you know that crocodiles are old. They've been about since the time of the dinosaurs. And you didn't live that long without being sneaky. (laughs) later on I was in Thailand and I got an opportunity to see a crocodile close up and I wrote this poem it's called Crocodile (laughs) the low lying tables were lit by lamps that dropped from the branches of a banyan tree customers ate beneath patches of light focused intent as agreed the waiter led me past the tables to a clearing And a long metallic storage tank. He drew back the latch. Darkness. And the gentle slap of water. It was there. Old. And patient. Patient enough to survive the blotting of the sun. Patient enough to see the passing of the dinosaurs. Perhaps patient enough for that prison. Stood still beside the dark. I felt the pull of another language. I could have lowered my hand into the tank. I wanted to feel its bite. I wanted to hear its music. Um, While I was in Thailand, I was there with my wife, who's just sitting in there, Uh, and we were wandering through the red light district, and we turned into a bar called Pinocchio's, but it turned out that it wasn't a bar, it was a brothel. And it was staffed by transgender females, which is... It's more usual in Thailand than it is over here, which is a good thing, you know? So while we were there, we thought we would just strike up a conversation with the staff, and we just had this brilliant conversation, really enlightening, and I wrote a poem called Temple. The harmony of genders altered his perception of movement. He saw every gesture as a dance. She would take his hands and hold them tight and say, I love the way you see but I'm trapped He'd say You're fusion The surgery When it came Proved him wrong Her post-op pussy Was architecture like they couldn't believe He was brought low Before a building constructed To allow his lover out Gone Were bricks and steel and cement This was flesh This poem is called This is it Skint, bo-ragged. pockets full of my own fingers. Can I afford to burn toast? And it's November. Christmas is close. I've been away, but now I'm back. And every corner's a different colour, cos I'm him, And memories are painted with mischief. I'm outside Greg's eating a macaroni pie. And a busker picks up his guitar and plugs in his amplifier. The sound for the strings is like frost he's young and the dreams that were born in his bedroom wake me up I'm watching people passing and they know that he's good but they don't want to look they turn their heads and tilt their ears and jog on if I had a spare pound I would throw it but I don't so I just listen I'd like to tell him that this is it this is where the hammer hits the stain and sparks are made standing on a corner on your tune. An audience of one rads eating a macaroni pie. <laughs> but singing. We oui, man. You're singing. I've got a cousin called Sheena. And she paid me a visit one day and she told me she was getting married and I said, congratulations, Sheena, that's, that's brilliant. And then she said, I'd like you to write a poem for the wedding. And I said, Sheena, that would be an honour. Thank you. And then she left, and I thought, for fuck's sake, (laughs) Jesus Christ. (laughs) So it was a civil ceremony, and I had to stand in front of the bride and the groom just before they get married and tell the poem. So the poem's called Marriage. I could take this opportunity to wish you love and happiness, but you've already got that. No. My wish for you is the incidental, the ordinary, To know someone by the way their fork moves across a plate. To see the majesty in someone's back, sleeping. My wish for you is 20,000 mornings climbing out of bed together. My wish for you is 20,000 sunsets that you can't see because the curtains are closed and you're sitting in a room talking about nothing in particular. Let the special occasions take care of themselves and learn to recognise the wonder in the everyday. My wish for you, as a life lived together, filled with breakfasts, suppers, spoons and pillows. And once I had finished the poem, I was facing the bride and groom, and I had to walk down the aisle. And as I was walking down the aisle, I heard my cousin say, What the fuck was that? (laughs) Mm, well... least I knew where I stood. (laughs) This is called uh, Monuments of the Mind. Three men sit at the kitchen table. My grandfather smokes Golden Virginia. Making a roll-up has become his ritual. His fingers help him think. So that's what he does. He teases tobacco from his tin. My father smokes silk cut and has a certain way of holding a cigarette, trapping it at the base of his first two fingers and lifting it to his mouth so his hand covers the lower half of his face. I don't smoke, but there's a bowl of soup in front of me. Both men like to see me eat. The room has been stained by two lifetimes of tobacco smoke and it doesn't physically exist but it's where I come for advice in fact both men no longer exist but their voices are as familiar as my own feelings I slam my spoon onto the table well if that's the way it is then that's the way it is that's the way it is says my grandfather my father nods his head he says that is the way it is this is called Dirt. I want the dust beneath the fridge to hold the DNA of generations. I want to lift a delicate carcass of an insect from the carpet. I want to sit by the window and watch water in the gutter, and when I pull back the sheets, I want them dirty, and I want the dirt in my hands, and I want it wet because there's rain and I've trucked through mud to get here. I want saliva and spit, and I want that part of your mind. To celebrate it. To act it out. There's dignity there. Lay yourself open. We'll both blossom. If you want me to call you a whore, I'll do it. Stand in the muck with me. Live amongst the flowers. This is called sadness. The sadness inside him went deep. The vast distance between every nucleus and every electron in his body was a well that could never be filled. Beauty entered and was lost. Wonder entered and was lost. People were drawn to him because they fell, and the feeling of falling was like flying. His eyes were pathways to forever, and everyone who loved him was lost. His death was a doorway being closed. And the world became smaller for him. I'd like to finish on this poem. It's called The Interview. A middle management centaur. Half man, half desk. (laughs) Collars for shoulders, buttons for nipples, lips like a paperclip. So, he says... In a flat, wooden tone. What are your positive attributes? <laughs> I only have one, so i tell them the truth. I say, I'm greedy. Gluttony is my positive attribute. I want everything. And I don't mean the money you're offering. Capital is desire for the deluded. I want loneliness. Because loneliness is beautiful. I want love because love is pain, and pain is essential. I want fear, fear is fact. I want all the lust life can muster. Lust is the push my mother pushed. Normal doesn't exist, so give me madness. I want it all, the whole lot, no holding back. And there's an afterthought. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Billy. That was fantastic. Um, Just a quick question before we hear a bit from Sarah. But if there's something that kind of unifies the collection and the selection, in particular, the that you read this morning for me, it's this feeling of something really elemental. Um, it's the energy that's tapped in, that's contained within the crocodile, or it's the sex, and, and it's the, um, or the kind of rawness uh, of the experience of talking to the family and things. What is it about poetry that allows you to get really deep under experiences and bring out that kind of raw energy underneath it all? And
2: so what, I start with quite a lot when I'm writing, so then I start with a big piece of like text, usually, so it's longer, and then crunch it down. So I think in the process of crunching something down, it allows you to find what is actually inside the thing that you're writing. I mean, I suppose everybody does it different, but that's just the way I like to do it. In fact, there's a thing at the beginning of the book that says, Temples and monuments reach for transcendence. Beauty lies in the carcass of an insect. Cities within cities take your eyes from the heavens, look long and deep, and that's right at the beginning of the book, and I wrote a 5,000 word short story, <laughs> and then that's what came out of it, you know, that's the only thing that could be saved, and I suppose boiling it right doing to, to find what's inside it is what it brings it out. Yeah,
1: I think it's yeah. really, the image of that is really strong in the crocodile, it's trapped in this cage, and, and they're in the water, mm. and you're really kind of, you want to feel as bite, I just loved, I just absolutely loved that poem. Um... Yeah, there's also I've got so many questions for you, but just a wee quick one on language. Um, the Scots in the book is unbelievably powerful. It's it's, it's really fun in a lot of places. Um, I love the way that it comes through really strongly in the dialogue. Um, is that a conscious choice? Do you? How do you set out? And I also noticed actually that a lot of the poems that are set in Scotland or closer to home or nearer the domestic. Tend to be in Scots, where the travel ones perhaps are in a more kind of um, mm-hmm. standard English. How do you? navigate that side of
2: things. So there's, there's so little that's actually conscious when you're writing. Do you know what I mean? So things just happen. You don't really make decisions, it all just happens. But there's there's different rhythms in this in the Scottish dialect that I'm using, or the, or the Scottish kind of way I would normally speak. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I always find that, like the interview poem, whenever I go for an interview and I have to speak formally, so then I have to start to consciously monitor the way I'm speaking, I become, I feel that I become really boring, because I have to think, I have to, like, think about the next word that comes out my mouth, and I think that the Scottish poems are a bit, they have a bit more humour in them, mm-hmm. just because it's normally the way I speak, but I don't know, but I'd like to, if I keep writing the poems in Scots, I'd like to take a look back, and then make a decision on what, how, if they're different in that way, but I don't know, yeah.
1: Interesting. Um, i yeah, lovely. Um I think well, let's hear a bit of um Sarah's work and then we'll maybe come back and have a, a conversation together. I'm gonna to have to embarrass you, Sarah, while you get yourself organized. Um Sarah Howe was born in Hong Kong to an English father and Chinese mother, and moved to England as a child. Her pamphlet, A Certain Chinese Encyclopedia, was published in 2009, and she received an Eric Gregory Award in 2010. Her collection, Loop of Jade, which is a thing of exquisite beauty, um, as you're about to hear, um, it was published in 2015 and um, won the T.S. Eliot Prize and the Sunday Times Young Writer of the Year Award. Um, Ruth Padell has said of Loop of Jade that it's a wonderful first collection although to me it doesn't read like a first collection at all, it's incredibly assured. Uh, she says, it isn't often you can say exquisite, original, erudite and adventurous all in one breath. Um, and Andrew Holgate who was chair of the judges for the Sunday Times Prize which she won she says she's a writer who's always conscious of language, these are poems that are sensuous, subtle and full of immediacy and resonance Um, Jim Carruth who knows a thing or two about poetry is nodding vigorously in the background, Um, so Sarah could we hear some some of Loop of Jade, I'm sorry you're cringing there but it's all due
3: (laughs) Oh thanks so much Jenny, oh dear my husband says I'm really bad at masking facial (laughs) expressions, I've got get better at that. Um, Oh, you have to feel sorry for me reading after Billy as well. Well, That was absolutely amazing, Billy. Um, This is called Earthward. I watched the shadow play of trees against the blinds one October in the way sometimes you stare at a pale face across the bed so long you hardly see it. Fingers trembling, vague as a street at night As nature stripped of accident They shook with a gusting stutter More restless still for being not the thing itself. Um, This next poem uh, I wrote Uh, last autumn for a commission for National Poetry Day, um, whose theme that year was light. Uh, And so I I thought I would (laughs) try, in my foolishness, to write a poem about um, experimental particle physics. Um, But amazingly, um, Professor Stephen Hawking agreed to uh, lend his voice to this poem um, for the sake of bringing it to a wider audience than it could ever have reached before. And you can actually listen to him reading it on YouTube Um, I met up with him before he recorded the poem, and I guess it's a sign of his mischievous sense of humor that he said, I'm not sure I have a very good voice for reading poems. Um, It was originally designed to be a telephone directory. Uh, This poem has a couple of um, physics experiments in it. The first is the the one that demonstrates the wave particle nature of light. So um, you shoot a photon through a slit uh, and it starts out as a particle on one side and by the time it reaches the other it's making an interference pattern like a wave. Um, But also one of Einstein's thought experiments Um, In one of them he rides on a beam of light Uh, but in this one it's the, the famous one with a flash of light, a train, and a clock. When we wake up brushed by panic in the dark Our pupils grope for the shape of things we know Photons loosed from slits like greyhounds at the track Reveal light's doubleness in their cast shadows that stripe a dimmed lab's wall, particles no more, and with a wave bid all certainties goodbye. For what's sure in a universe that dopplers away like a siren's midnight cry? They say a flash seen from on and off a hurtling train will explain why time dilates like a perfect afternoon predicts black holes where parallel lines will meet whose stark horizon even starlight bent in its tracks can't resist if we can think this far might not our eyes adjust to the dark? Um, And now I thought I would read um, a couple of poems from a sequence that runs down the whole length of this book. Um, each of the poems has quite strange titles because they come from the epigraph, uh, which is a passage in a, a wonderful essay by the Argentine writer Jorge Luis Borges, which uh, describes the entry on animals in a certain Chinese encyclopedia. Which, of course, is is nothing of the thought uh, of the sort. It's a, a figment of Borges's fertile imagination Um, but the entry uh, describes animals that uh, divides them into these categories like belonging to the emperor sucking pigs, tame um, uh, having just broken the water pitcher that from a very long way off look like flies (laughs) this sort of thing Um, and this poem is called having just broken the water pitcher and I I guess it, it describes my experience as a half Chinese, half white person. Um, I didn't grow up uh, speaking Cantonese, my mum's dialect, but I, I learned Chinese in my 20s. Uh, and um, this poem talks about I suppose my fascination with the way that you can pun in Chinese in ways that you simply can't in English. So the the structure of the characters means that um, sort of one dash or dot here or there uh, can mean that words look very much like each other but have entirely different meanings. Um, Or Chinese is just packed with homophones, um, which is why it's a tonal language in the first place. So it's almost hard not to pun in Chinese. And I suppose I was fascinated by the fact that uh, dissident activists and bloggers in China um, use this preponderance of puns as a way of circumventing the so-called great firewall of China, the system of internet blocks and filters um, which censor the Chinese language internet and mean that you simply cannot post certain phrases onto it like, for example, the date of the Tiananmen massacre in 1989. Um, And yeah, I I was really moved by this idea that um, these activists might use a poet's resources like punning um, in the service of of politics. Uh, This poem has an epigraph from a collection of Buddhist koans called The Gateless Gate. Bai picked up a water pitcher, set it on a rock, and posed this question. If you cannot call it a water pitcher, what do you call it? Having just broken the water pitcher. This fact I can't forget. My 30th year had hastened by before I learned to see how plum blossom lies one sidelong stroke of gum-suspended soot away from regret. It's said the man who invented writing, charged with this burden by the emperor, sought inspiration in the surface moods of water, that he was by the river when he spied in the finely cracking mud, a hoofprint, its brim still as a bronzed mirror stamped there by some invisible creature and understood his task. The moment he sketched the first character the sky rained millet and the ghosts wailed all night for they could not change their shapes. Five thousand years later in some remote coal mining district sits an anonymous blogger his face lit by more than just the ancient monitor. He ponders how strange it is How useful that I beg you for the truth is pronounced the same as I beg you, elephant of truth. Or that sensitive words, as in filters, crackdowns, sounds exactly like breakable porcelain. Done typing, he clicks submit. Recall the old monk's kawan the correct reply to Master Baijang's question. His pupil kicked over the pitcher and left. Um, and just one more poem I think, a slightly longer one. Uh, for a long time I tried to write all these hopeless poems um, about, that would do justice to the this quirk of my family history. The fact that my mum was born in uh, Guangdong province in China in, in 1948, but was shortly um, ab- after that abandoned by her birth family. Um, so she grew up uh, a sort of tenuously adopted orphan in Hong Kong. Um, and I tried many, many, Times to write about this and and just couldn't so I I guess I eventually worked out that I needed to follow Emily Dickinson's advice and tell it slant Um, But What became this poem became it it was no longer so much about my mum per se as about um, the so-called lost girls of China so the, the women who never existed, as it were. We can only know about their presence from the skewed gender ratio in Chinese society. The fact that um, as of 2012, there were an estimated 40 million more men alive in China than women. Um, And I guess the modern um, equivalent of, uh, of the practice that uh, is described at the start of the, this poem is, is sex-selective abortion, but as I was researching this, this what would become this poem, I read about an ancient Chinese custom whereby the midwife would scrape out a box of ashes from the hearth and put it next to the birthing bed so that if the baby was a girl, the parents could choose to efficiently smother her. This is called Tame. It is more profitable to raise geese than daughters. Chinese proverb. This is the tale of the woodsman's daughter born with a box of ashes set beside the bed in case. Before the baby's first cry he rolled her face into the cinders held it. Weak from the bloom of too much blood the new mother tried to stop his hand He dragged her out into the yard, flogged her with the usual branch. If it was magic in the wood, they never said, but she began to change. Her scar ridged back beneath his lashes toughened to a rind. It split and crusted into bark. Her prone knees dug in the sandy ground and rooted, questing for water, while her work-grained fingers lengthened into twigs. The tree, a lychee, he continued to curse as if it were his wife, its useless, meagre fruit. Meanwhile, the girl survived. Feathered in grayish ash, her face tucked in, a little gosling. He called her Maiming. No name. She never learned to speak her life maimed by her father's sorrow for grief is a powerful thing even for objects never conceived he should have dropped her down the well then at least he could forget sometimes when he set to work hefting up his axe to watch the cleanness of its arc she butted at his elbow again again with her restive head till angry he flapped her from him but if these silent pleas had meaning neither knew the child's only comfort came from nestling under the lychee tree, its shifting branches whistled her wordless lullabies, the lychees with their watchful eyes, the wild geese crossing overhead. The fruit, the geese, they marked her seasons. She didn't long to join the birds, if longing implies a will beyond the blindest instinct, Till. One mid-autumn, she craned her neck so far to mark the geese wheeling through the clouded hills. It kept on stretching till it tapered in a beak. Her pink toes sprouted webs and claws. Her helpless arms found strength in wings. The goose daughter soared to join the arrowed skein, kin linked by a single aim and tide. She knew their heading and their need. They spent that year or more in flight, but where, across what sparkling tundral wastes I've not heard tell. Some will say the fable ended there, but those who know the ways of wild geese know too the obligation to return to their first dwelling place. Let this suffice. Late spring A woodsman snares a wild goose that spirals clean into his yard, almost like it knows. Gripping its sinewed neck, he presses it down into the block, cross-hewn from a lychee trunk. A single blow. Profit. Loss.
1: Fabulous, thank you, Sarah. I think that gives you a really good sense of how beautifully this collection draws together the historical and the classical and the familial and the kind of personal narrative um, of Sarah's own story. It's just an extraordinary thing. Um, I wanted to ask you a wee bit about language and about the process of learning Chinese for you. Um, I think that thing about homonyms, as somebody who has also spent many years learning Chinese, that that ability to pun and the way that one word can so confusingly mean almost its exact opposite at the same time. But there's also this fabulous pictorial thing about Chinese. So you've got the character, for instance, for field, which is just a square with a cross in the middle, field. And then electricity is lightning through that field. It's just the most fabulous thing. And then to build all the words after that that are related to electricity, you put that bit at the front, that dn, and you have dian can, which is electric seeing, which is TV, <laughs> and dian Ying, which is electric shadows, which are films, and D N T, which are electric stairs, which is an escalator. And it's just, it just seems to me to be the most tremendous gift to a poet. When you were learning Chinese, did that? How did that impact your use of language? And what has that kind of has it brought a richness for you?
3: Um, I. I guess I was also fascinated by um, exactly the phenomenon you've just described. but I was also fascinated by the European fascination with right. this, yeah, which yeah, I guess yeah. is, a, is something that totally goes go back to, to the very, very sort of earliest contact of, of um, the West with China. So the sort of Jesuit missionaries who arrived in the late 16th, early 17th century and, um, and looked at Chinese and saw that, you know, the word, the character for wood looks like a pine tree or the character for moon looks like a crescent moon. And, and they sort of, uh, some of them speculated to themselves... Uh, my goodness, is this uh, the lost language of Eden? Uh, did um, one of Noah's sons strike off east and, uh, and, and found China or, or something? Um, and it, needless to say that it's a little bit more complicated than than that. Um, so a lot of this idealisation, which of course crops up again in the 20th century with Ezra Pound and so on, is, is sort of... Um, an idealization which is also a, a misunderstanding and I guess that slight um, Chinese whispers if you'll forgive me effect is something that fascinated me uh, in this collection yeah. um also that I guess the the sort of visual pun that I described that's st- the start of that poem between plum blossom and regret um, that's completely coincidental those Words in Chinese have no relationship etymologically with each other. It's it just it's just one little um, line that makes that, that makes them different from one another, and and yet uh, somehow the connection with them seems like something that's worth c- connection seems worth puzzling, even though it's completely arbitrary. I think you can probably tell that
1: there's a real kind of intellectual. Um, Force behind Sarah's writing that, as a reader and as you know, listening to it, I, I, there's just this lovely feeling of having to go back and read the work again, and just to try and keep up with you. It's a, it's a really lovely challenge as a reader, I think. But it's incredibly rich and vivid as well. Um, so there's no doubt that it was your own kind of experiences and what you personally witnessed that that informs the collection too. Did it, was there travel and things that in, that led to the publication of *Loop of J Oh,
3: definitely. There were years of travel. I I guess the book sort of started ten, ten plus years ago actually maybe it's more like 15 years ago now I guess I'm getting old um, when I I started to go back to China and Hong Kong because my family moved to England when I was seven and then it was 10 years before I went back again I was 17 when I first went back with my mum and a a lot of the poems in this book come out of those early trips of re-encountering a place which is supposedly home but where you haven't lived for most of your life where, um, and I guess I still have this feeling when I go back, where I, I am um, something of an outsider. Uh, so that experience fed into the poems very, very much. Um, and thank you for what you say about the sort of intellectual questing of the poems. That's very um, important to me. But I guess another thing which I hope comes out in, the, in them is the fact that I come from not particularly educated people. My mum is is a total autodidact uh, and so sort of mispronounces English words quite often because she's never seen them anywhere other than written down Um, and so she uses English in quite strange ways like she doesn't have always the most perfect sense of register so she'll sort of throw in a very polysyllabic esoteric word at one moment when it doesn't seem quite apt and I think maybe that sense of language's possibilities and fluidities is something that that rubbed off on me somehow an immigrant sense of English
1: lovely <laughs> just oh, good Okay, we've got a little bit of time. Um, this is a good chance um, for any of you on the floor to ask questions if you would like to. Um, I don't know, Billy, would you like to read another quick thing while people have a think about that? Or do you want to reflect on anything that you've heard and uh, what Sarah said? I know, actually, the two of you have read together before. Um, mm-hmm. In quite unusual circumstances, it sounded like, Billy, what, what were you doing on the roof?
2: <laughs> yeah, so we were part of a... Julia Bird organised a tour called I Gaze From My Kitchen Like an Astronaut and we worked with our theatre director to help give us some pointers. And it was to take... You would normally hear a poet reading much like this with a lectern in front of them. It was to take that lectern away and then have it more as a, a theatrical piece. And so we did. We were in Keats' house, and there was a promenade um, event where the, the public would get led through each room, and there would be a different poet in each room, and they would get a poet reading through each room, which was nice. And then we, we were in a... It was like an arts gallery that also was a house in Devon, I think it was. And then in my first book, there was a lot of to do with roofing because I used to work as a roofer, and then they put me on a roof to do my poetry reading. That's why I was on <laughs> the Billy
3: totally stole the show, by yeah. the way.
0: <laughs>
3: Are there any questions from the floor?
1: Yeah, this one here. Just wait on the mic, it's just on its way. There's somebody sprinting from the back to you.
0: Uh, hi, uh, um, I just came across another phrase in your book. About the tenuous moorings of words, and I wondered if um, Billy would read that. Like talking about, uh, because that for me was about tenuous tenuous mooring of words. Um,
2: yeah, which which one?
0: That uh, talking about.
2: All right. Okay. So. Yeah. So let me see it again. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> did you write this, Billy? I <laughs> did. Oh, <aye>. Right. Okay. <laughs> right. It's called talking about <laughs> Anna Rot Mamouff. You're da. So what are you talking about? I'm saying Anna wrote my move. Aye, well, <laughs> <laughs> you're yeah,
1: yeah, thank you. I'm so glad you picked up on that. It's the most fabulous <laughs> vote and that that, which when you spell it out, sounds like anar move. A narrow mouth. It's brilliant, and it comes up a few times in the poems. And I've been having so much fun with it at home, getting my American husband to read it out loud and trying to say it on the bus on the way here this morning. A narrow mouth.
2: Yeah. <laughs> uh, my wife's English, and I've tortured her with it as well, like, so trying to, to get to sound it out to try and get the meaning. But so far, I only know two people who have got it first off, and it's two of my uncles. <laughs> you know? But it's there to decipher.
0: But, but, uh, you know, and you use it in one of the later poems where you, you shift register from the interview man to mm-hmm. on the roof of my mouth, which is what I take it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, that feels very like your words, there's something accidental about your words, I don't know if you want to comment on that or whether I'm just lost. <laughs>
3: Oh, thank you. I, I'm glad you brought up the tenuous moorings. That's a reference to the poem, which is sort of about what we were talking about earlier. This phenomenon of thinking, oh yes, Chinese, there must be this perfect connection between the word and the thing that doesn't exist in European languages. And um, and so, as poets, we might think that we're tying up language all very neatly, and then it turns out that um, our boat actually isn't very securely fastened and drifts off whilst we're having a nap. Um, Uh, Yeah, I guess um, Chinese Whispers is something that has fascinated me for a long time. And I think that phenomenon does come up in my work... um, in quite a lot of ways, this idea of mishearing and that that accident might somehow be felicitous or productive in a funny way. I guess when I arrived in the playground in Watford when I was seven, uh, the children were playing this game uh, and I was sort of mystified as to what was Chinese about Chinese whispers. Of course, it's the idea that foreigners speak incomprehensible nonsense, (laughs) isn't (laughs) (laughs) it?
1: It comes back a wee bit to what you're saying, Billy, about that um I think the formal term for it is code-switching. When you're um, comfortably using Scots and as your natural speech, and then you go into formal setting and feel that you somehow have to suppress or change or adapt that. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you say, everything is instinctive. And I mean, where does that come from? Why? Why do we do that?
2: <laughs> why do we do? Why do we do what? That
1: formalisation of our language.
3: Do
2: you know? That's a hard question for me to answer myself. But I suppose there's a. Standard English is a way for everybody to communicate. Because you've got a standard format of language, it means we can c- communicate across the like the multitude of dialects that exist out there. So we could all go back to that. So, if, I mean, if somebody was to send me uh, an email and it was written in Cornish, you know, then I might, I, might, I might struggle to access it. But the experience would be totally different. I'd end up looking at this thing, I'd be sounding it out, trying to get the meaning, and then it would enrich the language. So although I think the reason that we we move towards that formal language is so we can communicate mm. effectively across all the different parts of the UK. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. sure. I don't know.
1: But let's not lose all the other richness underneath. Well, no, yeah. but there's,
2: there's, it's like... Dialect is just... We call it dialect, but it's just language. Every word, whether it's a French word, a German word, or whether it's hus or home, it's all just language, and each single sound has a slightly different meaning. So there shouldn't be any barriers between them all. It should all just be the one fluid movement of sound.
1: Isn't that a great thing that we have poets who help us unpack all of those things? Do you have any more questions? There's a lady in the middle here. Thank you. I think um, when you learned Chinese, did you learn Cantonese or Mandarin? And did you um, read a lot of classical poetry?
3: Um, I learned Mandarin because there are so many more resources for learning Mandarin. It's, it's sort of... Um, Cantonese, you could almost call it like the Scots of of the Chinese-speaking world, I suppose, um, in the sense that it is a dialect and... and Uh, quite a marginal and somewhat threatened language in in some ways, uh, at least in the official discourse in China. Um, So yeah, I still don't speak the same dialect of Chinese as my mum, which is a bit perverse, but it does mean that I have access to the literary language, I suppose. Uh, Yeah, I did read a lot of classical Chinese poets, um, and I, I would sort of never published these translations I think but I spent a lot of time translating people like Li Po and Du Fu as a sort of apprenticeship I guess. Um, funnily enough I I I didn't think of myself as ever having spoken Cantonese and then um, I went back to Hong Kong recently for a, a reading trip and when I got back my mum said oh no you did used to come out when you were very small come out with little perf- pitch perfect phrases and and sentences in Cantonese. So, not only had I forgotten that I did once, uh, that forgotten my Cantonese, I forgot that I did once seem to speak it more than I had read. Yeah, it's, it, it's peculiar these, the way these things come back.
1: One more over here, lady in the glasses. This is a question
0: for both of you, really. Um, how did you first realise that you could write poetry? You know, did, did it happen as a child? Did you have a sort of revelation when you were seven, or how did you realise that you, and how did it develop in you from the time that you were young?
2: Yeah, so uh, if I remember, I remember the first poem. Like, well, it's my first memory of writing a poem. My uh, primary school teachers asked me to asked the class to write one for homework, and I hadn't done the homework. So I woke up in the morning and I put the TV on, and the King's Cross Station disaster was on the TV. And then I wrote a poem about the King's Cross Station disaster, and I put it in stanzas. So I must have, I remember I had this Lewis Carroll book, so I must have been reading that, but I can't remember. But I set it in stanzas, handed it in to the teacher, and then she liked it so much, she sent it to Roger McGuff. Now, this is when I was about mm-hmm. 11 or 12, and then he sent me a letter back saying, uh, in capital letters with an exclamation mark at me I keep writing. So that's the first. I can remember writing that poem, but I don't know where it came from
3: great story <laughs> uh, I wish that I could say that I sort of wrote feverishly as a child and teenager, I'm very envious of writers who can say that but no I, I didn't really have any idea what I was doing, so I, I can remember sort of being set writing poems as classroom exercises at school or that sort of thing, but it wasn't really until I was about 20 or 21 um, and living in America for a year as a graduate student that I started to write poems in earnest um, And I think it was something about being foreign again, about the experience of uh, sort of needing to translate myself in a new culture and that sense of constantly being read as from elsewhere because of the way I sounded that started me writing poems.
1: I've heard that so many times from writers about the importance of Travel and a distance from your own experience, and being able to kind of reflect back on your place and things—it's just it fascinates me. I just think it comes over and over again, and it's so important that writers, I think, have the have the opportunity to do that if they need to be able to kind of look through a lens back at their own experience and their own work. Um, I, I, it's putting you on the spot, but would you be able to each read another quick thing before we wrap up? Do you have mm-hmm. something that All right, that'd be lovely. Thank you. Do you need your book, Billy? Uh, oh, no, no, sorry. Do you know
2: something? When I was, I was really like... I didn't know where I was going to put the, the Anna myth poems in, and I struggled with them, and I took them out, and I took them in, and I knew they were going to come back to bite me. Like, when they... <laughs> Do you know, but it's important that they're in there, I think, as well. Like, you know? So um, I'm going to read this. It's called In the Back Alleys. Passing midnight in Pushkar, I was tracked by a pack of wild dogs. Felt real fear when four of them started darting forward, snapping and growling. I picked up a stick and told myself I would go swinging. I can lie to myself that way. A local, squatting quiet beside a pile of bricks, stood up and chased him away. Flicked his arms and kicked his legs. The Dugs knew the dance. A dance born in streets where hunger growls And hope is majestic, as absent and present as a god.
3: Um, I think I'll read a little mouse of a love poem. uh, there was a time when Billy and I did a whole bunch of readings together, but haven't somehow seen each other for a few years. And I think in the intervening time, both of us got married. And so um, our books seem, our most recent books seem to have quite a lot of marriage poems. Um, and this is a little love poem for my husband, who's sitting over there. Um, there are there are quite a lot of poems. I didn't realise this until I was putting the manuscript together, where. Um, He's biting his nails uh, in the poems, but it's been encoded in various ways, Uh, so you'd have to know him to know this. It's called Frenzied. Maybe holding back is just another kind of need. I am a blue plum in the half-light. You are a tiger who eats his own paws. The day we married, all the trees trembled as if they were mad. Be kind to me, you said.
1: Thank you so much to both of you for getting the festival off to such a terrific start. Um, really would encourage everybody to go and buy some books, um, both Loop of Jade um, and Dirt, and I think Billy's previous collection, Bevel, are all available in the bookshop. Um, they'll also be signing, so please do come and say hello. Um, both of these collections are really, as you've probably already decided for yourself, such a good investment of time. Um, but thank you too, for you, you guys, for investing your time and coming uh, to join us this morning. Morning. Please give a very, very, very warm vote of thanks for Billy Letford and Sarah Great. Not at all.
0: More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Ed Book Fest.